last couple of weeks, as I've driven up the road here, um, I don't know if any of you that live around the area have noticed or not, but there's a little, not, not that little, but a young moose that's been walking around down on the corner by the graveyard down there. And I've seen him three or four times. I actually went down there with my camera and snapped a few pictures, got fairly close to him. National Geographic once ran an interesting article about, about moose, the Alaskan bull moose to be exact. The males of the species battle for dominance during the fall breeding season and literally going head to head with antlers crunching together as they collide. And often the antlers, their only weapon, are broken and that ensures defeat. Now the heftiest moose, the one with the largest and strongest antlers, usually triumphs. And therefore, the battle fought in the fall is really won during the summer when the moose eat continually. The one that consumes the best diet for growing antlers and gaining weight will be the heavyweight in the fight. Those that eat inadequately sport weaker antlers and less bulk. Now, there's a lesson here for us in that article. Spiritual battles await every single one of us. Satan will choose a season to attack. Rest assured on that. Will we be victorious or will we fall? Much depends on what we do now, in this season, before the wars begin. Maybe you're in the war now and much depended upon what you did previous. The bull moose principle is simply this, enduring faith, strength, and wisdom for the trials are best developed long before they're needed. You don't develop that, that kind of stability and security in the crisis, you exhibit it in the crisis. You develop it before the crisis hits. Choosing sermons can often be one of the most difficult areas of ministry for any pastor, um, especially for me, especially when I've just finished, you know, a whole string of series or mini-series on, on a topic, and especially through the holidays. I mean, it's all about Christmas and that kind of thing. And, but it just can't be hit or miss. There's too much at stake because spiritual battles not only await, but they are going on even as we speak. How many of you know that? Amen. Satan's not only planning his next season of attack, but he's attacking right now. And we must be prepared. And as I pointed out, how we fare will depend upon what we do now, what we feed on now, what we choose to develop now for later. Now, I haven't preached a series on, of practical messages on the person and the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in over 15 years. Now, I've preached on the gifts of the Spirit just a few years ago, but not on the person of the Holy Spirit. Now, it's easy to shy away from such a task as preaching on the Holy Spirit. One reason is that it is such an overwhelming subject that it is sometimes hard to know even where to begin. And once begun, how in the world could the series ever end, right? Now, I agree with Chuck Swindoll, who asks this poignant question. He says, is there any theological subject more intriguing, more significant, or more controversial than the Holy Spirit? 
After all, who is qualified to teach on such a personal and profound and inexhaustible subject? In the words of the Apostle Paul, who is adequate for these things? Well, no one is. No one that is in and of themselves. The most qualified person to teach on the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit himself. And thankfully, he has left us much to mull over in his best-selling book, the Bible. As the author and interpreter of God's word, we can rely on him. Jesus said to his disciples, the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things. Amen? He will guide you into all the truth. That's John 14, 26 and John 16, 13. There is no subject to me more intriguing, none more significant in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ. And there is probably no subject more controversial, as I've said, yet there is none more transforming for life and none more empowering to face the spiritual battles that await us than the Holy Spirit. He is our helper. He is our comforter our teacher, our power. He is our strength. He is our God. And it is my opinion that most Christians need to know him so much better than we do, including me. Would you agree? I came across a sad story once, a story about a honeymoon disaster. I'd ask you to raise your hands to how many of you have experienced a honeymoon disaster, but I don't want to get you in trouble. (laughs) The newlyweds in this particular scenario arrived at the hotel in the wee hours of the morning with high hopes. And they'd reserved a large room with romantic amenities, but that's not what they found when they got there. Seems the room was pretty skimpy. The tiny room had no view, had no flowers, a cramped bathroom, and worst of all, no bed. Just a fold-out sofa with a lumpy mattress and saggy springs. It wasn't what they'd hoped for, nor what they paid for. Consequently, neither was the night what they'd hoped for. Next morning, the sore-necked groom stormed down to the manager's desk and vented his anger. And after listening patiently for about, oh, 10 minutes or so, the clerk asked, by the way, did you happen to open the door that was in your room? The groom admitted that he hadn't. So he returned to the suite and he opened the door he had thought was a closet. And there, complete with fruit baskets and chocolates, was this huge, spacious bedroom with all the amenities that he could have wanted. Crazy little story. But how many of us are like that couple in our spiritual walk? How many of us have missed out because we've never been curious enough to open the door that will transform our cramped, tight, drab, frustrating, often disappointing stay on this earth into a vibrant, fruitful, meaningful, spirit-filled experience of life. How many of us are content to settle for this cramped little tiny room with a saggy bed and 
Nothing we really expect. You know, too often we Christians are cramped, cranky, and uncomfortable in our faith. When in reality, comfort is just one door away. That's the reason I felt led to jump right into this subject with both feet to kick off this new year. And maybe there's this little prophetic thing involved too where God says, you know what? Like the bull moose, you need to feed now because you don't know what's coming later. And you need to be ready. Because I'm not sure, to tell you the truth, what to expect out of 2010. I know one thing, however. My purpose is not to hand you an airtight, no room for growing, dry, emotionless, theological treatise on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. That's not my goal. It's not hardly my goal. My goal, rather, is to join with you in opening the door to the practical, personal discovery of an intimate, exciting relationship with him while remaining committed to the sound teaching of God's word. Holy Spirit's not static. He is full of surprises. He moves where he wants and when he wants. As Jesus said, you feel the effects of it, like the blowing wind, but you don't know where he's coming from or where he's going. At the same time, however, he will not force us, you and me, against our will. As long as we're open to his leading and attentive to his promptings, I think we'll all be surprised at what he does in our lives. There's no need for fear, however, because we can bank on this one secure fact. Mark it down if you're taking notes. Write it in the cover of your Bible because you should concentrate on this all the time. The Holy Spirit will never lead us anywhere but closer to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit will never lead us anywhere but closer to Jesus. Our responsibility is to keep in step with him. Are you willing to do that? Keeping in step with the Spirit means staying in tune with His voice. And that's what this series is all about. Let me give you a rundown about some of the things we're going to cover. It's about how the Spirit functions. If you want to get a little bit of a head start on this, you can read this week John 16, verses 7 to 15. Classic text on the Holy Spirit and how he functions. How he functions in relationship to the world, to the church, and even to Christ himself. Now, I'm not going to go there today because we're going to dive into that in depth later. But I just want to bring it to the forefront. It's about how he functions. The series is going to be about his focus, the Holy Spirit's focus. In a word, the Holy Spirit's focus is on transformation. That's his agenda. He wants to make changes in our lives, and that scares us to death. It scares me to death. Because I know what he can do. And so do you. We remember at the inauguration of Jesus' ministry, before he, he publicly went out, what did the Spirit do to Jesus? He led him into the desert to be tempted by the devil, where he fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. But remember, we don't have to fear because... Say it with me, the Holy Spirit will never lead us anywhere but closer to Jesus. 
R.C. Sproul said this, the Holy Spirit is like the wind. Jesus said the wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it but cannot tell where it comes from or where it goes. We cannot capture the wind in a bottle. It is elusive and mysterious but nonetheless real. We see the effects of the wind, trees bending, swaying in the breeze, flags rustling. We see the devastation of the fierce hurricane. We see the ocean become violent in a gale and we are refreshed by gentle zephyrs on a hot summer's day. We know the wind is there. And so it is, he says, with the Holy Spirit. He's tangible and he's invisible. But his work is more powerful and more ferocious than the wind. The Spirit brings order out of chaos and beauty out of ugliness. He can transform a sin-blistered man into a paragon of virtue. The Spirit changes people. The author of life is also the transformer of life. Now let me ask you a question. Is he changing you? Is he changing you? Communicating biblical truth in a relevant way in order to effect spiritual change is the target of this series. That's the target. It's the goal. It's also one of the main purposes for which Jesus gave his spirit to us. His function, his focus, and this series is going to be about his fire. His fire. Take your Bible and read the New Testament accounts of the disciples' exploits in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit radically and irreversibly transformed ordinary people into passionately committed people who altered the entire course of history. For the most part, they were not academic whiz kids. They held no prominent positions. They weren't refined. They weren't wealthy. They weren't recognized celebrities. By today's standards, or even by the standards of their time, they were probably the last people that you and I would pick to win the world for Christ. And yet, this is what we read about them in Acts chapter 2. If you want to follow along with me, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as a fire distributing themselves and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Let me just stop right there. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This was a defining moment in history and in their lives individually. Neither history nor their lives would ever be the same again after that. Because of the spiritual flame of the indwelling spirit, their weaknesses were transformed into extraordinary abilities. Their reluctance was transformed into confidence. Their intimidation was transformed into invincibility. Their emptiness was transformed into total fulfillment. They preached, they prayed, they were persecuted, but they persevered right to the end until they were martyred. All because of one thing, the 
fire of the Holy Spirit in their lives. You know that it's still available now. We need to let him burn. We need to let him burn. Because our greatest need, your greatest need, my greatest need is to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And so, part of this series is going to be about his filling. His filling. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, don't be drunk with wine, for that's dissipation, but rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? How can we be filled? Paul commands us to be filled with the Holy Spirit, but what does it mean? And what, more importantly, how can you tell if you are? Do we have to fall down on the ground and convulse? Does it result in uncontrollable laughter or unintelligible speech? Is it found in the simplicity of yielding and opening ourselves up to his control on a moment-by-moment-by-moment basis? Is it that? Is it operating under his influence and exhibiting, exhibiting his fruit? And that's another thing that this series is going to be about. It's going to be about his fruit in Galatians 5. We're going to tear those apart one by one. It's also about his faithfulness in John chapter 14. And it's about, believe it or not, it's going to be about his frustration. Do you know that God gets frustrated? That the Holy Spirit can become frustrated? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 30. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 19. It says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. How do we grieve him? How do we quench him? All of these things are waiting our discovery in this series if we choose to open that door which will lead us into this grand ballroom of life in the Spirit. But most of all, it's about his freedom. It's about his freedom. You want to be free, don't you? Don't we want to be free? We say we live in a free country, but it's really not. We're controlled. We have a certain amount of freedom, more than other parts of the world, but we really want to be totally free, don't we? Free from always falling into the same debilitating human temptations. Free from the confines of our sinful nature. Free from the paralyzing accusations of Satan as he points out our weaknesses every single day and our shortcomings. Don't you want to be free from that? That freedom is just what the Spirit has come to give us. Left to ourselves, though, there is no way on the face of this earth that we are going to attain that freedom. We need the Holy Spirit. We need Him. Galatians chapter 5. I'd like you to turn there. We're going to hang out here for a little while. Galatians chapter 5. In verse 1. Paul writes, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 13, 
For you were called to freedom, brethren, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Keeping in step with the Spirit means staying in touch with his inner voice, and you can bet that the enemy of our souls is going to do everything possible to keep us from listening. Folks, there is a full-scale war going on, and it's not only out there in the world. The most strategic conflict that we're up against is being waged right in here and in here. So, Paul says here in this text, Wake up to the concern of the moment. Verse 16. Verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit and you won't carry out the desires of your flesh. Walk by the Spirit. It is a command. Walking by the Spirit is expressed as a command here. Paul was no stranger to this ongoing inward battle. He knew exactly what he was talking about. And it's only by making a conscious effort to conduct our lifestyles according to the Spirit's desires that we can begin to live transformed lives. But no list of rules, no matter how religious or how noble, can bring that about. Just turn in your Bibles, hold your finger in Galatians 6, turn over to Romans 8 for a moment, look at verse 2. Therefore, in verse 1, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. It's a clear command. But walking in the Spirit is also exhibited as a continual, ongoing condition of life. Paul's talking about a habit of life here when he says walk by the Spirit. Not just when it's convenient for you, or when you're in the company of other Christians, like we are here today, but he says, walk by the Spirit continually, consistently. And you know what? It's work. How many of you know it's work? It's work. How many of you know it requires our effort? You know, some people think that walking in the Spirit is simply the matter of letting go and letting God. Let go and let God. Or living this surrendered life. How about trust God and get going? Right? That's the other cliche. And there's no responsibility on our part by living by letting go and letting God. Nothing could be further from the truth. Walking by the Spirit is not passive surrender. It is active submission. 
Those two are different. It's listening for and hearing the Spirit's voice and acting on what you hear. I think a lot of times that we Christians hear the Spirit's voice and we talk ourselves right out of acting on it. Because we get this little dialogue going on in our heads saying, is that really the Spirit or is that me? Or is that Satan? Or is that the steak I had for supper last night? What is that? We don't trust him enough. Or we don't trust ourselves enough to be in the word enough and to be in prayer enough to understand what his voice sounds like. See, he's talking about the power for Christian living here that's entirely from the Holy Spirit. The power for Christian living is entirely for the Holy, from the Holy Spirit, but the practice of Christian living depends on our active commitment and obedience to him. We're not puppets on a string. That's not what the Christian life is about. We're not just sitting on the sidelines watching the coach play the game. We're in the game. And we better be following the plays that the coach is calling in. Correct? God's sovereignty, friends, never dispels our human responsibility. Never. Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 to 13 says this. I'm going to read it to you out of the New Living Translation. Dearest friends, Paul writes, you were always so careful to follow my instructions when I was with you. And now that I am away, you must be even more careful to put into God's act, action, God's saving work in your lives, obeying God with deep reverence and fear. For God is working in you, giving you the desire to obey him and the power to do what pleases him. See, God gives us the desire and the power, and we need to obey it. Galatians 2.20 says, I am crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. Okay? So that's, that's God's part. That's the Holy Spirit's part. But the life which I now live in the faith, meaning my active participation, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's that twofold thing. So, Walking by the Spirit is expressed as a command. It's exhibited as a continual condition and it's experienced. We experience in it this constant contention. Constant contention. If we pay attention to the Spirit's voice, if we act on what we hear, then we will not carry out the sinful desires of our flesh that rages on within us. Plain, simple, to the point. There was, now, never was there a better, simpler, more all-inclusive principle by which we can overcome wrong desires and selfish motivations and uncontrollable passions than this. Walk by the Spirit and there's no way, Paul says, that you will sin. Is that right? Walk by the Spirit, there's no way you'll sin. But how incredibly difficult is that to actualize, right? Is it even possible? Well, of course it is. God wouldn't have written it to us if it wasn't. 
What it does bring to the fore, however, is how intentional we must be in our focus on the Spirit's work, first in our minds and then in our hearts and in our souls. In the original language here, Paul uses an emphatic, what they call an emphatic double negative, which says literally, by no means shall you fulfill your fleshly desires. There's no way, by no means, that you will do it if you walk by the Spirit. Look, you can set up all the external rules you want, and they may be helpful for self-discipline. But the desires and the lusts of our flesh will find a way to circumvent those disciplines. Take my word for it, there is no man-made rule on the face of this earth that can successfully deter our deepest most passionate, sinful desires. None. Better yet, just don't take my word for it. Take God's word for it. Because there is only one way to thwart the enticing power of sin. Here it is. Here's the secret to your Christian life right here. Paul gave it to us. Order your life by the Spirit and you will in no way under absolutely no circumstance, be able to bring to completion the desires of your sinful nature. That's it. Now don't get me wrong. When you walk by the Spirit, you may still experience sinful desires, but it will be difficult to exercise them. Sinful desires are incredibly, incredibly strong. Anybody know that? You're not convincing me. <laughs> They're really strong, aren't they? No question about it. It's no accident that Paul uses the most intense word for this that he could find. You know what the word is? It's the word for lust. One commentary I consulted described the word Paul used here as a violent desire. That really, really gives a picture. A violent desire. That's an excellent way to describe what lust is. It is an ardent desire which oftentimes leads to violence erupting into bitter words, sarcasm, gossip, and it causes untold damage to relationships and lives, doesn't it? James rightly identified our lusts as the root source of all of our conflicts in life, every one of them. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. Good News Bible puts it like this. Where do all the fights and quarrels among you come from? Good question. Where do they come from? He answers it. They come from your desires for pleasure, which are constantly fighting within you. You want things, but you cannot have them. So you are ready to kill. You strongly desire things, the word lust but you can't get them. So you quarrel and you fight. You do not have what you want because you do not ask God for it. And when you do ask, you don't receive it because your motives are bad. You ask for things to use for your own pleasures. Now, James cuts right to the, the root of it, doesn't he? 
Although murder may not be the usual outcome of lust, it is the logical end. It is always the logical end if you carry it out far enough. I mean, think about it. Cain and Abel, what was the root problem? Lust. It was desire. Sin's desire. Joseph, what was his brothers? Well, his brothers threw him in the pit to kill him. Why? Because they were jealous of him. Lust. David and Uriah. The Jews and Jesus. I mean, you can keep on carrying it out. Now, I'm not trying to be overdramatic here. All you need to do is look around. It won't take long to find concrete examples, not only out there in the world, but also in the church. What are these desires and deeds of the flesh that Paul is talking about? We'll just skip down a few verses here for a minute. Look at verse 19 in Galatians 5. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are, read them, immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousies, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you just as I have forewarned you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. These are the desires and the deeds of what Paul calls your flesh. And there is only one real way to combat those desires. Philosophy is not going to do it. Education is not going to cut it. Personal resolve will never accomplish it. Political legislation absolutely won't stop it. The simple and most basic answer to the stemming the tidal wave of divorce and murder and violence and relational catastrophe is what? Tell me, it's right there. Walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit. In the words of one preacher, one old preacher, I love this, we aren't going to move this world by criticism of it, nor conformity to it, but by the combustion within it of lives ignited by the Spirit of God. Is that right? The concern of the moment is that we walk by the Spirit. It's the only way to deal with what Paul describes as the conflict of the ages. Look at verse 17 here. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. Now when Paul refers to the flesh here, he's just not limiting it to sensual pleasures. The fleshly life in a nutshell is simply life lived in pursuit of one's own ends. Independent of God. It's our old sinful nature he's talking about. Now you might think, oh, I thought when we received Christ... That old man died. Didn't it die? I'm crucified with Christ, right? Well, in essence, yes, that old man did die. But you got to know something about death. Death is not extinction, just separation. At salvation, Christ separated us from what? The ruling power of sin. We no longer have to obey it like we once did. 
We are free to obey Christ because the Holy Spirit in us gives us that power, gives us that freedom. But that sin nature still wants to control you and me. It still rears its ugly head up. Read Romans 6 this week. You'll see all about it. Because there's this irreconcilable conflict that goes on inside all of us, inside every Christian. This battle rages. There is an intense struggle going on between the sinful desires of the flesh and the righteous desires of the spirit. Anyone who believes that at salvation the sinful desires of the flesh were eradicated completely is painfully ignorant of what the scriptures teach. They're still there. But we're not under the power of their rule anymore if we choose not to be. Paul himself wrote very personally of his own internal struggle in Romans chapter 7. He says, the things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things I, I don't want to do, I do. What is that all about? You ever see that old black and white movie clip of two trains rushing toward each other, smashing into each other head on? That's the picture that Paul is talking about here. Our fleshly desires are steamrolling toward the Holy Spirit's desires on a crash course. The New Living Translation gives us a clearer picture of verse 17. It translates it like this. The old sinful nature loves to do evil, which is just the opposite of what the Holy Spirit wants to do. And the Spirit gives us desires that are opposite from what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting against each other and your choices are never free from this conflict. Never. It's out and out war between our natural bent and the Spirit's desire for each one of us. There is this intense antagonism toward each other. When the flesh presses us to indulge ourselves, the Holy Spirit is there to counter it. When the Holy Spirit tells us what course he wants to take in every, any given situation, the flesh erects a roadblock to it. It's punch, counterpunch, punch, counterpunch all the time. Total opposition. And the purpose of each is to prevent the believer from doing what the other moves him to do. But the choice is always yours. It's always mine. Always. You know, the old comment, Flip Wilson comment, dating myself big time now, the devil didn't make you do it. You chose to do it. In that respect, Christians have it harder than unbelievers. Any amens to that? Harder. Harder. Let me explain that. Before I was in Christ and his spirit was in me, if I wanted to gratify my selfish wants, no problem. All I had to do was squash my conscience a little bit, and voila, immediate self-gratification. And trust me, I did a lot of squashing in those days. And you know what happens when you squash your conscience too much? Your conscience becomes seared. And the next thing you know, you're not feeling guilty anymore about those things. Who has control over you at that point? Yeah. You're under the ruling power of sin. You don't even have a choice anymore. You're just doing what comes natural. Now, as a believer in Christ, I'm up against a little bit larger roadblock, right? The Holy Spirit. He shouts at me, no way are you doing that. 
You know that's not the way we do things in this kingdom, Russ. You know it. It's an irreconcilable conflict. It's going on all the time. And you know what else it is? It's an intentional conflict. Intentional. Christians who tell me that it's God's will for them to get divorced or that moving in with their boyfriend or girlfriend before they get married is fine or that God put them together with an unbeliever is fine are deceiving themselves into thinking that they are walking by the Spirit. The Spirit and the flesh are in direct opposition to one another and one of them is going to win out. Only one. Romans 8, verses 7 to 8 says this, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. Always. It never did obey God's voice and his laws, and it never will. That's why those, now watch, watch this, what Paul says here. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature, what's it say? Can never please God. Those are very serious words. Can never please God. The conflict that goes on is intentional, says Paul, so that you may not do the things that you please. It says it right there. So that you may not do the things that you please. Now, there are three ways to take what Paul is saying here in that statement. One is that our sin nature keeps us from doing the good that we desire. That's kind of along the lines of Romans 7, 15. Second thing is that the Spirit keeps us from doing the sin that we desire. And the third way to take that phrase is that each nature hinders the other. You know what I think? Well, I think all three are in force here. As Christians, we are always experiencing the clashing of two opposing forces. But the choice of which we will submit to is always ours and victory is always available through Christ. Romans 7 again at the end. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who? Thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have the victory. I, I read one time, now I don't know how true this is, but I read one time in a history book somewhere that when Paul talked about that, who would deliver me from this body, from the body of this death? He was referring to a practice that they used to do in the old days of the early church in the Roman days where they would, they would take a person and they would strap a dead body to him. And they'd have to walk around strapped to this dead body until, you know, all of that decay and that rot would eventually just take over the other person. What a judgment, huh? To be condemned to do that? But Paul says, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Gives you a better picture, if that's really true, of what he was talking about. I'm not sure if that's true or not. But it gives a good picture. And so as we face this concern of the moment to walk by the Spirit, and as we acknowledge the conflict of the ages between the flesh and the Spirit, Paul closes with what I would think and refer to as the consolation of a lifetime. Look at verse 18. Paul says, but if you're led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. You're not under the law. Let me extrapolate Augustine's famous line. Here's the, here's the key. Love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. 
Submit yourself to the Holy Spirit's direction and then do as you please. That's simple. Because if you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you submit yourself to the Holy Spirit consistently, you can do whatever you want. You know why? Because you'll never do anything against God's will. Here's the fact. Paul said it here. And somehow, somehow, I don't know how, but somehow Benjamin Franklin got it exactly right. When he reportedly said, only a righteous people is capable of true freedom. Is that right? He's right. Because that's what Paul says here. Paul says here in verse 18, if you're led by the Spirit, righteous, then you are not under the law. You are capable of true freedom. You don't need a law to direct you. You and I have no need of one single law to live by when we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit and continually follow His leading because He will never lead us anywhere but closer to Jesus Christ. The question is, how do we learn to recognize His leading in the sound of his voice. And by the end of this series, I hope you'll know. When we live by the Spirit, no law can condemn us. We become fruitful. We have sound assurance that we are Christ's children. We are filled, transformed, empowered, renewed. And in place of our frailty, he brings us strength. And instead of confusion, he gives us clear understanding. In place of frustration, he gives us wisdom. In place of worry, he gives us peace of mind. He's always at work for us and always at work in us. My brothers and sisters in Christ, here is the great gift of our Lord Jesus Christ to us, his bride, the church. The great gift of the Holy Spirit. It's the greatest gift of the Christian life. In the person of the Holy Spirit, Jesus gave us his best. We're going to look at that. Maybe next week or the week after. Jesus said, it's to, it's to your advantage that I go away. Because if I didn't go away, the Holy Spirit wouldn't come. But I am going away, and he is going to come. And you're going to do greater works than you see me doing. Imagine that. What more could we ask for than that? So what are you doing with this Holy Spirit that Christ has given you and me? What are we doing with it? Let me close with, with this little pertinent story. It's actually written by Robert Fulgham. It's called The Good Stuff. The cardboard box, he says, is marked The Good Stuff. One of the keepsakes in the box is a small paper bag, lunch size, and though the top is sealed with duct tape, staples, and several paper clips, there is a ragged rip on one side through which the contents might be seen. This particular lunch sack has been in my care for maybe 14 years. But it really belongs to my daughter, Molly. Soon after she came of school age, she became an enthusiastic participant in packing the morning lunches for herself, her brothers, and me. Each bag got a share of sandwiches, apples, milk, money, and sometimes a note or a treat. One morning, Molly handed me two bags as I was about to leave. One regular lunch sack and one with the duct tape and staples and paper clips. Why two bags? Well, the other one is something else, she said. What's in it? Ah, just some stuff. Take it with you. 
So not wanting to, you know, put it into my, not, not wanting to hold court over the matter, he says. He says, I stuffed both of the sacks into my briefcase, kissed the child, rushed off to work. About noontime, while hurriedly scarfing down my real lunch, I tore open Molly's bag and shook out the, the contents. Inside the bag were two hair ribbons, three small stones, a plastic dinosaur, dinosaur, a pencil stub, a tiny seashell, two animal crackers, a marble, a used lipstick, a small doll, two chocolate kisses, and 13 pennies. I smiled. How charming. Rising to hustle off to all the important business of the afternoon, I swept the desk clean into the wastebasket, left over lunch, Molly's junk and all. There wasn't anything in there I needed. That evening, Molly came to stand beside me while I was reading the newspaper. Where's my bag? What bag? You know, the one I gave you this morning. I left it at the office. Why? I forgot to put this note in it, and she hands over the note. Besides, I want the bag back. Why? Those are my things in the sack, Daddy, the ones I really like. I thought you might like to play with them. But now I want them back. You didn't lose the bag, did you, Daddy? Tears puddled in her eyes. Oh, no, I just forgot to bring it home. I lied. Bring it tomorrow, okay? Sure thing, don't worry. And as she hugged my neck with relief, I unfolded the note that had not gotten into the sack, which said on it, I love you, Daddy. Oh, he said. And then he said, uh-oh. I looked long at the face of my child. She was right. What was in that sack was something else. Molly had given me all of her treasures. All that a seven-year-old held dear. Love in a paper sack. And I'd missed it. Not only missed it, but I'd thrown it in the wastebasket because, quote, there wasn't anything in there I needed, unquote. He says, dear God, it wasn't the first time or the last time I felt my daddy permit was about to run out. It was a long trip back to the office, but there was nothing else to be done, so I went. The pilgrimage of a penitent. Just ahead of the janitor, I picked up the wastebasket and poured the contents on my desk. After washing the mustard off the dinosaurs and spraying the whole thing with a breath freshener to kill the smell of onions, I carefully smoothed out the wadded ball of brown paper into a semi-functional bag and put all the treasures inside and carried the whole thing home gingerly like an injured kitten. The next evening, I returned it to Molly. No questions asked, no explanations offered. And the bag didn't look so good. But the stuff was all there, and that's what counted. To my surprise, Molly gave the bag to me once again several days later. Same ratty bag, same stuff inside. I felt forgiven. And trusted. And loved. And a little more comfortable wearing the title of father. Over several months, the bag went with me from time to time. It was never clear to me why I did or did not get it on any given day. I began to think of it as the daddy prize, and I tried to be good the night before so I might be given it the next morning. <laughs> In time, Molly turned her attention to other things, found other treasures, lost interest in the game, grew up, something. Me? I was left holding the bag. 
She gave it to me one morning and never asked for it back. And so I have it still. So the worn paper sack is there in the box, left over from a time when a child said, Here, Daddy, this is the best that I've got. Take it. It's yours. Such as I have, I give to you. I missed it the first time, but it's my bag now. The priceless treasures of a father's little girl loving a paper sack. Think of what Robert Fulgham almost missed. He actually did miss it for a moment, but then recovered it. What a gift. What a gift. You know, as Christians, you and I have been given a gift, a priceless treasure from our Heavenly Father. All that He holds dear, He has entrusted to each one of us, every single one of us, not love in a paper sack, but love in a person, the Holy Spirit. And we've missed it for the most part. Not only missed it, but many have mentally swept His work of searching and teaching and revealing into the wastebasket of forgetfulness simply because it didn't seem all that important at the time or practical or necessary. Folks, I hope if you get anything out of this series, it will be a recovery of the treasure and the gift that the Father has given to each one of us as his children.